What on earth have you given me? That is how you can measure your nighttime erections. It's unbelievable in ways it improves health and wellness. Brian Johnson is back. The billionaire who's spending $2 million a year to stay young forever. Through algorithmic precision. This is the most impactful humanitarian project ever. Trying to find the very best science in the world for how you can extend your life. And how's it been going? Honestly, I'm in the absolute peak performance of my entire life. I've extended my lifespan over 30%, reduced my age by 12 years, increased muscle and strength, and now six months of perfect sleep. I have accomplished the best sleep score in history. A demonstration of human ability, because if I can do it, everyone else can do it too. Every second of every day, we're all trying not to die. That's what we're doing as a society right now. It's not working very well, but if an algorithm could manage your health and wellness for you and achieve near perfect health, would you opt into that? Because we found it. But what can the average person do? One thing that works is Really? Yeah, it's, it's like the super of superfoods. There you go. Well, that is not how you're meant to have that. And what comes next? The best is yet to come. Kate Tolo. Kate, will you come on out? <laughs> so you're the first woman on earth to follow Brian's lifestyle. That's right. What's been the biggest sacrifice? <laughs> You're now coming up on th almost three years since you started Blueprint, which is your sort of anti-aging, life-extending longevity protocol. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Give me a overview of the benefits you've been able to achieve in those three years. Mm. I legitimately have never been happier in my entire life. Why? It, it's like when you have a a series of bad nights of sleep and you, you're eating poorly and you sleep poorly in a week or two, you just normalize to that new norm. You don't realize what you've lost. It just becomes invisible to you. And then when you bounce back after a really great night's sleep and you take care of yourself, you make the observation, this is the most remarkable thing ever. I wish I could exist like this all the time. And I've hit that state where I'm in the absolute peak performance of my entire life. I've never been as well rested. I've never been as clear with uh, greater clarity of mind. I've never uh, been more calm emotionally. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not provoked. I'm not irritable. Things that I struggled with before. It's true that you don't know how bad you felt until mm -hmm. you feel good. I, I can mean, relate. <laughs> it's dealing with oneself is uh, the most challenging thing, and this is from my experience, the most challenging thing in my existence is understanding my own self, like uh, trying to map out where I'm self-aware and where I'm unaware, where my self-awareness ends and what I've normalized to and can no longer see, what status quo hides from me, what biases I have in my brain, what blind spots I have. I'm blind to so much of reality and I just have no idea. And the brain plays these tricks on us where we believe with confidence that we we're the master of our reality, that we see all things, we feel all things, that if something's missing, we're going to note it. But really, my life has become trying to find out what's invisible to me. What are some of those psychological biases that you think most people still don't realize are, are illusions? <laughs> oh man, it's like my f most favorite topic because we are fooled into thinking that we truly understand our situation, our reality. 
And there's so many easy tricks one can play, even something simple. Like if you prime somebody with words like uh, grandma, grandmother or grandfather or like, you know, like things that trigger thoughts of old age or being slow, and then you ask the person to walk down the hallway to do a task, those who've been primed with old sounding word, old uh, associated words and young, the old associated walk more slowly and the young walk quicker. We incorporate all these things into the way we act and the way we think and what we internally uh, generate. And we just, it's beyond our awareness. So for people that don't know what the word priming means, essentially, if you just say those words to somebody, if you say grandmother or grandfather or old associated, elderly associated words to somebody, in studies, they then walk slower. I'm really interested in the behavioral stuff because I think most of us are governed by a set of stories that we've mm -hmm. come to learn believe about ourselves that we've probably learned from false evidence along the way. And we're now living our lives in accordance with that false instruction manual. Like there's a puppet master pulling the strings, telling mm -hmm. me that I am a entrepreneur that does a podcast and that <laughs> I am a, I'm unorganized and I'm, you know, whatever <laughs> it might that. be, you know? Yeah. How does one go about understanding that those words are governing our lives, but then also more importantly, getting rid of the, the, the power that they're exerting over us? There's a few things I do on a daily basis to help me. One, I read a book by Gary Becker, The Economics of Life, uh, when I was uh, 24 years old. And he would take any given topic like poverty, something that would be non – you wouldn't think that this thing relates to math and economics. It's just like this so social phenomena that I would have previously heard someone tell me a story about. And he would break them down uh, using economics. And I thought, that's unreal, a world understood – through numbers and graphs and models, not through stories. No one's going to tell me any story. They're just going to lay this out. And I realize that there are limitations, of course, to those things. Like stories are embedded in those to some extent. However, from the world I came from, where it was dominant on, on story, to see that the world could be objectively measured, understood, and quantified changed my reality. And so now when I look at a given situation, I try to identify what is the numerical representation of this thing? What is the mathematical formula? What is the graph that explains this phenomena? Not through a story lens, but like what actually are, what systems are at play? So I try to parse through all the, all the decoys that would otherwise take me down a different path. And then secondarily is- Give I me an example of that. What's an example? I mean, so like uh, what determines whether I have high quality sleep? <laughs> and most of the time, in my, previously in my life, my sleep, quality was something like a random. I would go to sleep and I would have no idea what was impacting why I would get high quality sleep or not. Mm -hmm. And then I could numerically back out. That's what I've done over the past few years. It's what elements contribute to and how those biological processes function and then what happens when. And you can map out the entirety of that process. Last time we, we'd spoken, I think you were on four months of perfect sleep. Mm -hmm. Where are you at now? I completed six months of perfect sleep. And what does perfect sleep mean uh, for 100% sleep score. And that's judged by? Uh, my wearable, by, by Whoop. Okay. And so before I did this, nobody had achieved that series of 100% of scores. And many people who have had a device like that for over a year have never once achieved a 100% sleep score. And what I was trying to do was something akin to like a four-minute mile or Amelia Earhart flying a plane across the Atlantic or you know, someone climbing Everest. It was basically a demonstration of human ability that people didn't think was possible. And then once one person demonstrates it, it opens it up for everyone else. Because if I can do it, 
everyone else knows they can do it too. And so I wanted to show that reliable, high quality sleep is achievable. And that if you do that, it could potentially give you the best cognitive and emotional performance of your life. Do you think there's a human being, an adult human being on planet Earth that's slept better than you for the last six months? There's currently no one that has shared data that has achieved that. So if we're just looking at the data alone, which is not an entire representation, then yeah, I have accomplished the best sleep score in history. Pretty impressive. And for the, for just to recap, so I'm I'm clear because I know we discussed this last time. You go to bed at like eight eight p.m. Right? Eight thirty. Eight thirty. And your last meal of the day is before midday. Yeah, that's right. Eleven a.m. Eight thirty. And you're still doing that. You're still going to bed at eight thirty every day. That's right. People are. I feel like this. Their sleep is getting worse and worse in society mm-hmm. with the uh, stimulants that we consume, the way we live our lives, devices destroy sleep. Do you think sleep is the, really the foundation of daily performance? Would you would you aim at that first if you were someone that was trying to start your journey to live a a life more in line with your long term goals? Sleep is the single most important thing any human does on any given day. And if you look at it from a cultural identity standpoint, uh, people like you and me who work hard at an entrepreneurial endeavor, there's this mythology that if you sleep under your desk or you go days without sleep, you're a hero, that people will tell stories about you. It's like the old, like, I guess, Viking mythology where you, you have these stories told about your great deeds. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like if you're a great entrepreneur – and if you want to be respected by your peers, and if you want to achieve mythology like status, you do that sleep deprivation thing. Mm. And so it's built so far into our cultural identity. So when people, I know when my friends who, I act as a therapist for many people who go through this thing where they they don't realize why they actually can't prioritize sleep. And then when we dig deep, it's that they have these imaginations of the kind of person they want to become and how they want others to view them. And they feel trapped that if they don't complete the mythology lore, that they'll somehow be less than, and they won't achieve the ranking among the social group. And it's all backwards. The, the, the shift that's appropriate is, and it's happening actually right now is that the person who prioritizes sleep is going to be higher performing They'll be more lucid. They'll be. They'll have better ideas. The people who don't sleep are literally half dead. They're actually intoxicated. They're impaired. Physiologically. So, physiologically, they're impaired. Explain that. When you are sleep deprived, uh, to a certain degree, it is equal to being intoxicated by alcohol. You're inebriated. And so these are the people who are leading organizations there are groups of a uh, large number of individuals that are expecting them to make high quality decisions on behalf of the entire group. And it's those very people who are not sleeping well and who are impaired in their judgment. It's backwards. And so uh, this is, it's a, it's a good note to make. And this goes back to the first conversation of what am I not aware of? If you're playing the script of social norms of doing what people say, and you're not questioning them, then you're you're living a you're living in a in the past of antiquated ideas that are hurtful to you. So here's one more example. I was at a conference the other day, 
And the gentleman who was interviewing me said, hey, who here thinks that you can live forever? And there was like two people were like, <laughs> who, who here thinks you're going to die? And like everyone's hand shot up. And I was commenting to them that when, when you read history, who in a historical moment actually understood what was happening in that time and place? You know, 99% of people are living in the past. They repeat the things that people in the past had said. The future had already arrived. So if it's like the year 1634, the future already arrived in 1634. It's just the people there living during that time frame don't know it. They hadn't seen it yet. They hadn't been exposed to it. Or they, maybe they exposed to it, but they thought it was crazy or the person was a quack. And so you're always people are always living in the past. And so the same is true right now. We are living in the past. The future is already here. The ideas and technologies are out there. Maybe you and I have seen it. Maybe we can't. Maybe we encounter it. Maybe we believe it. Maybe we don't. But it's definitely here right now. And sleep is one of those things where the future is already here. And people who are playing the mythology of no sleep and other desk and everything else, they're living in the past. I think a lot of people listening who do struggle with sleep do believe in the importance of sleep. At least if you ask them, they'd say they did. But for whatever reason, you know, they might have sleep-related difficulties. They might have insomnia. They might lay in bed all night and just feel anxious or whatever else. And it's those people that I I want to offer some advice to. Mm-hmm. The people that, um, yeah, they, they work hard and stuff, but they just struggle with sleep. Yeah. There's a difference between the acknowledgement that sleep may be good for you and like you say, like, yeah, I'm on board with good sleep. It's an entirely different situation when you prioritize your life around that, which means if somebody's like, hey, let's grab a drink, sorry, can't, my bedtime's at blank. Or if you're, uh, if you find that you sleep better by having earlier meals and then you're in a social event, you're like, well, I'm going to eat anyways. So it forces you to make really hard decisions on your actual lifestyle, which it does. It pits you against social norms, which are uncomfortable. We want to fit in. We want to have friends. We want to be part of the tribe. So it, it does really invite, but the, every person who makes the gesture, who does it, makes the tribe stronger. So when one person's brave enough to say, Actually, I'm going to hit the sack, guys. And like, oh, man, you're, you're such a wuss. Why are you doing that? Hang out, man. Like, what's wrong with you? What you, you know, like they, they jokingly try to belittle. It's kind of serious and kind of not. But every time somebody does that and has the courage, there's several others in that group who are like, damn, I now feel empowered that I can say something. And that's the norm that's shifting. But this, it's the same social dynamics in whatever time you're in. It's just understanding that and not being owned by it. And then I guess the other the other exception potentially is parents that don't have yeah um, childcare. Because yes. I mean, I've when I speak to parents, they always tell me they're like, Steve, listen, when you have a kid, you can forget your no meetings before eleven a.m. Yeah. rule and your whoop HRV competition. Yeah, because when that baby cries at three a.m., you know, and then at four a.m. and then at five a.m., you're just going to be dragged through the mud with them. So. Yeah. That's true. And having raised three kids, I can attest that that's true. Also, you can definitely establish a sleep culture in your family where you can make it understandable that once the child goes to sleep at whatever age, the expectation is they're in their bedroom for that entire duration of time. Absent something, a fire or them feeling threatened for their life, if it's because they lost their play, their toy car under their bed or it's because they can't find their blankie, 
none of that justifies leaving the room and entering, you know, the parent's bedroom. So there's definitely things that can be done. You're not entirely powerless and you can make meaningful improvements by setting the standard for the entire family. That starts with the parents. Like what, what hygiene do they maintain and what do they pass on to the children? But it's not entirely hopeless. Based on the way you live your life now, you must look at people and see a whole lot of excuses and a whole lack of responsibility everywhere you go, every tweet you get, every comment you see, it must just to you reek of low responsibility because you're someone that, as you said last time, has kind of given up control of yourself to this blueprint, which really is the, the essence of um, discipline is completely surrendering to that. Mm-hmm. Do you think people are lacking in responsibility and full of excuses about their lives? <laughs> I mean, who of us are not that? And like any of us who would dare say otherwise are deceiving ourselves. And this is, again, a self-awareness is we all are self-deception machines. And anyone who doesn't believe that is self-deceiving. Do you still self-deceive? Absolutely. What are you still self-deceiving yourself on? Do you suspect? (laughs) I wouldn't trust myself in my own pantry with a bunch of junk food. That's why in my house, I can have... I've eliminated all self-harm. There's just nothing I can do because I don't trust myself. It's not like I, you know, I feel like I've created so much discipline and confidence that like put it in front of me and I won't do it. Even though I do it on a daily basis when I'm in social situations, I don't put myself in that environment. But yeah, I mean, I, my goal is to find where I'm in error in thought and action constantly. That's the, that's the gem. That's the treasure chest is finding out where you've missed. But you can know you've missed somewhere. I think about areas in my life where I go, right, I know what the right thing to do is, but for whatever reason, I keep not doing the right thing. Yeah. And I keep getting the feedback. Yeah. Okay, you, you messed that up, Steve. And then, you know, a week passes and I might do the same thing again. The one game we all humans play, every human on the planet is playing is don't die. Every second of every day, we're all trying not die, not to die. So we look both ways before we cross the street. We have carbon monoxide detectors. We don't seek out, we don't drink poison, you know, on purpose. Like we, we do all these things to not die. Now, the weird thing though, is I can look both ways before I cross the street and also be smoking a cigarette. Hmm. And that's just the nuances of the human mind. But what I wanted to do with Blueprint is I wanted to say, okay, if you really take do, uh, don't die to the absolute extreme, I'm going to measure every biological process in my body and find out where every cell is aging, like where basically where dying is happening. And then I'm going to identify all those behaviors and I'm going to, going to try to eliminate every behavior that contributes to don't dying. So what is possible in 2023 for the ultimate uh, effort of don't die on every front? And that means no excuses ever for anything. So a six-month sleep score, like you basically have to say, this is in stone. It's not going to be changed under any circumstance because I'm trying to prove a point of what could be done with the science in this moment. So when you said about the cigarette example, you'll cross the road, you'll look both ways to make sure you don't get hit by a truck, but you'll be smoking. <laughs> the way that I interpreted that is, okay, we don't want to die. And we'll, we will want to sign up to don't die, but none of us want to sign up to don't live. Yeah, with with living you're mapping that to like some sensorial pleasure. Like you, you, just some kind of, yeah, yeah, some kind of pleasure, whether it's having a couple of cocktails or yeah. 
staying up late and watching Netflix or yeah. whatever it might yeah. be. Yeah. And you're trying to find the things that create the stimuli that you, you care about. Yeah. I think most people want to extend their life, but I, I think they only want to extend it as long as they can live within that extension. And obviously what you've chosen to do is to extend your life and make bigger sacrifices than the average Joe would be prepared to make. Yeah. The, the argument I'm making is in any other time as a homo sapien, I completely understand that thought process. Do your thing. The difference right now is we're baby steps away from superintelligence, which means for the first time in the history of homo sapiens, we may not die. And so I'm arguing that only in this moment does it make sense to take these extreme measures. Because before, you can easily say, look, I'm willing to trade 10 years of end life for this version of life now. Reasonable, understandable, sure. But in this moment, you may miss out on the most spectacular existence in all of history. So why, why do that for some cheap thrill? What's that spectacular existence I might miss out on? Um, it's complicated. <laughs> Definitely complicated to be human. Uh, when you look at the capabilities of AI as it's emerging, there's reason to believe that we are acquiring the ability to engineer reality. We can physically engineer atoms, molecules, organisms. We can create experiences with, with uh, certain chemicals. We can program physical, we can program visual, uh, digital realities. Like we have our fingers on the ability to engineer and program the entirety of our reality increasingly. That opens up an expanse of opportunity that is so far beyond our imagination, we can't even begin to pretend like we understand. Okay, this is something I've never mentioned before. In 2023, I launched my very own private equity fund called Flight Fund. And since then, we've invested in some of the most promising companies in the world. My objective is to make this the best performing fund in Europe with a focus on high growth companies that I believe will be the next European unicorns. The current investors in the fund who have joined me on this journey are some of Europe's most successful and innovative entrepreneurs. And I'm excited to announce that today, as a founder of a company, you can pitch your company to us. Or if you are an investor, you can also now apply to invest with us. Head to flightfund.com to gain an understanding of the fund's mission, the remarkable companies we proudly support, and to get in touch with me and my team. Legal disclaimer, Flight Fund is regulated by the FCA, so please remember that investing in the fund is for sophisticated investors only. Don't invest unless you're prepared to lose all of the money you invest. This is a high-risk investment, and you are unlikely to be protected if something goes wrong. There is no guarantee that the investment objectives will be achieved, and as with all private equity investments, all of the investment capital is at risk. This communication is for information purposes only and should not be taken as investment advice or a financial promotion. What are the... Um Concerns though, if everybody gets older, isn't there going to be like huge disparities in like wealth and stuff? Because I read some stats that the global share of wealth held by people over the age of 65 is increasing. In 2020, people aged 65 and older held 35% of global wealth. By 2050, they're projected to hold almost 50% of global wealth. Mm -hmm. Isn't it going to be the case that if we're all living longer, 
you'd imagine like think about some of the richest people in the world now they would just accrue more and more wealth older generations would have more wealth and younger generations would mm-hmm. would have very little there'd be this kind of disparity within society the 250 year olds will all be like billionaires mm-hmm. yeah that's just an engineering problem it's society it's, it's public policy so and- do you believe in like a universal basic income where we'd hand money to people? I mean, I don't think it's not a reason to not want the future. It's not a reason to not want longevity. It's not a reason why we shouldn't extend lives. It's not a reason why somebody should be deprived. It's not like if you're wealthy and you're old, you should die. You know, it's like it's everyone's got this opportunity for life. And if there's a, a very large disparity and it's getting worse, it's a public policy problem. It, do you not think from like a philosophical standpoint that death is part of life? I, If you look at any sort of animal kingdom... Death is part of the sort of a natural attrition that creates new offspring, new mutations, mm-hmm. new um, energy, new ideas, I guess. It has been the system of intelligence that produced us. Mm. We have now taken the reins and we are now the new system of intelligence that's creating life going forward. When did we take the reins? When we started learning how to engineer biology. When we, when we, this is what I spent the past 10 years doing is my observation was after selling Braintree Venmo, it's amazing that we have been able to create the capability set in the digital world. You take a problem that can be solved by people sitting down at a computer and coding software. We can, as a species, we're extraordinarily good at it. Millions and millions of people that can do it and solve problems very quickly. If you take a problem in the physical world, like we say the coral reef is dying around the world, which is creating a major problem in these in oceans, how do you make a coral reef that is more robust to heat or to big you know, variations? You need to have the same programmability of programming, of building a new coral reef that can do that sort of thing, if that's a, an, appro- an approach to the problem. But we need to have those abilities. And so the goal I had was we need this foundational technology so that any problem in the physical world, whether it be our health, the health of the oceans, anything, you know, building a global a bi- a biological immune system, we need to have these physical abilities. And so once you have that, you can program physical reality, including uh, conscious states, including earth health, including our health and wellness, all things become possibilities. Do you, are you talking about Kernel? Uh, no, my, I had a venture fund. Okay. Yeah. What is Kernel? What are you doing with Kernel? Kernel is a way for us to use science and data to build our best cognitive existence. So like for example, it's easy for each of us to, to get on a scale and see our weight. And when we see weight is climbing very quickly, uh, you know, we think that's not a good situation because that leads to bad health outcomes. I don't feel great. And so there's like a, a, it's a good feedback mechanism for how well am I doing with my health with my weight. We don't have the same equivalent for our brains. You can get an MRI or you can get a PET scan. They're great, but they're hard to get. They are expensive. Uh, it's very laborious to actually do it. We need to be able to acquire information about our brains as easy as it is to step on a scale and get our weight. And that's what we built a kernel is to buy helmet, you put it on your head and you find out important information about your brain. I had my brain scanned last week. Have you seen your brain? I have. Of course you've seen your yeah, brain. Yeah. Did you find out anything about your brain? Uh, I did. Well, I wanted to demonstrate that you could ask a question, what happens when? And then take a given thing about the brain. Like, what happens when I do a psychedelic? What happens when I play a game? What happens when I don't sleep well? What happens when? And all the things we do that affects our brain. And in this case, I was a pilot participant for ketamine. So we ran a 15-person ketamine study. Ketamine is a anesthetic, also used to tranquilize horses, also a party drug. 
And so I received a dose of, of ketamine in my arm. And then I was in that experience for 45 minutes. And what we saw was interesting that I had my brain measured for 10 minutes a day for five days before during the ketamine experience and then five, then uh, 14 days afterwards. And I think that was the most interesting thing is my brain patterns. Like if you think about the patterns, like imagine you're looking at planet earth and there's airports all over the earth and you're seeing traffic patterns between each airport. So between Tokyo and New York, there's a lot of traffic, London, New York, a lot of traffic, but between you know smaller cities, you have just a few planes here and there. There's big traffic patterns in our brains of where activity is happening. And those patterns tell you things about yourself. Like it sounds like you had some analysis done. And when I did when I did the five days of measurement, my patterns of my brain were stable. Every single day, they were the same, the same traffic from the same place to and from. And then when I did ketamine, it scrambled all of my patterns. It's like you took the globe and you just like remapped where all the airports were and like, okay, planes start flying. And then over on day three, four, my patterns started forming again back in a similar way. And so there was that two to like one to three day therapeutic window where I was very open to new pattern creation. And it was, there's this joke among my colleagues where we were walking from one meeting to another and there was a wall that was in front of us. And I, this was day two after I took ketamine and I thought, I'm going to jump over the wall. Like that seems like a fun idea. Why not? So I just spontaneously jumped over the wall and then all my colleagues were like, what are you doing? <laughs> we're in a work environment. We don't jump over walls. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't thought about it in that frame, but I wonder if in that moment I was open to doing something different and unique that I normally wouldn't have done because I had this opening, but it was cool to see my patterns where they were, how they changed and how they reformed in some kind of window that opened up as how I could remap my own experience. I mean, that's probably a pretty compelling case for psychedelics as it relates to mental health. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we think of some mental health disorders as being stuck in patterns, patterns of thinking, patterns of belief, patterns of behavior, um, there's been quite incredible clinical studies done to show the impact that something like psilocybin mm -hmm. or ibogaine can have on mm -hmm. addiction or depression. What's your view on psychedelics? They're powerful. Yeah. And I hope that kernel accelerates their progress because most of the, the measurements are done through questionnaires. You're asking the person how they felt, how they felt and their perspective, but we know that our subjective experiences are not terribly reliable. Like when I, after I had ketamine, if I were to use words to explain what I experienced, I don't know. If I'm asked on day three, how I felt in day one, it's hard to remember. Now you can journal and try to make uh, more detailed notes, but it's really hard to subjectively account for your brain. And so having a, a, a system that tracks the data removes some of that challenge and it could help usher in uh, psychedelics for uh, much broader adoption, much faster, because you've got data to support what you're trying to demonstrate. Have you tried all the psychedelics? <laughs> um, Ayahuasca. I've had some experiences. Mushrooms. I've done mushrooms. What'd you think? Really interesting experience. Did it, did it change your your opinion or your perspective of your own mind? Yes. Yes. Um, I was overseas. I think I was in Peru or something. And I was at a mushroom ceremony, whatever. And I'd taken the treatment that the 
shaman or whatever had given me and i didn't think it was working so i went over and sat down on my laptop <laughs> yeah oh no really fucking bad idea yeah and i for whatever reason and this is so on me i clicked on like netflix because everyone was over there and they were all having their experience i thought i'll just i'll just watch something on netflix and i don't watch i don't even watch netflix i click something on netflix and as i'm watching it it's like some i don't know some reality tv thing and it just becomes really apparent to me that these people's values that I'm watching are like mm. really bad. Mm. They're all like bitching about each other and they're all being mean to each other. Mm. And at that very moment, the world started to just spin and shake. And I put the laptop away and went and joined the gang. Wrote about 35 notes of um, of handwriting. Again, I never write with my hands mm. about connection. Mm. And in that moment, I learned that like my perception on reality is so fragile. Mm-hmm. And so what what do I believe? Mm-hmm. You know, if if this experience that I'm having with you now, this perception of reality is that fragile that one little capsule that i can just shake it all then jesus i can't trust much can i i love that so much Mm. that's so beautiful like what do we really know about anything and like you said like this one little plant and you eat it, you ingest it, and then somehow your reality is absolutely transformed into something that you never imagined was possible. But then you come right back. You do. And this is also, this is the the frame around like, don't die. So I understand before our time and place right now, like in the 19th century, sure, do your thing because you're going to die and that's fine. But right now, I guess with your, your mushroom experience, do you feel open to the idea that we may acquire new capabilities of conscious experience creation that could make your reality more interesting and more worthwhile, like whatever, than anything you could ever imagine? Yes, but it also could not. Sure. Because I just don't know. So again, it goes back to like, it's hard for people to bet on uncertainty in their lives. Yes. You know, people don't... Who wants to bet on, I don't know. Interesting. Are you basically impartial? I'm kind of good with what life's like now. I think life's quite cool now. I think, I think I still feel like I'm bending reality by the way that I like live my life and the things I've achieved. And I still feel like I've got more mountains to climb in my life Mm -hmm. and higher peaks to see. So you see what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. So it, it's not really about a, a dissatisfaction so much now as the driver. It's that the possibilities are a motivator that you, if you say, um, it's just the possibility, like some, something you've not experienced, a, a new reality you could experience. Like some, we're walking into the cradle of super intelligence. Okay. So let's define super intelligence just in case that someone's lost us along the way. Okay. When you say super intelligence, you're talking about like artificial intelligence and computers that yeah. are, you know, infinitely more intelligent than we are and how we can interface with that intelligence to bring, make our lives and our decisions and our capabilities better. That's right. Like the computational intelligence on near future timelines are going to be far superior to our form of intelligence. Like how and when and what forms, no one knows. But if you look at the trajectory of the speed, it's fast. It's, it's faster than our minds can comprehend. And so if we, whatever comparison you want to make, like whether, you know, an ant relative to us or, 
whatever the version is or homo erectus to us, I don't, we, we don't know those details on what their experience is. But like if, if you just try to un, like think about the scale of intelligence and what that experience may be like, even though we don't know, but you know, it's interesting, your, your response is uh, informative for me. I have a bias, and this goes back to my blindness. I think this idea of walking into the cradle of artificial superintelligence and the ability to engineer all of reality is the coolest opportunity maybe in the known galaxy. What's the most compelling argument you've heard against your do not die position? The one that troubles you the most? (laughs) I'm entirely unconvinced by any argument that I've ever heard about it. Are you entirely convinced by the do not die argument? I'm convinced uh, through the thought experiment I did. If I if I try to transport myself to the 25th century, and of course they have a sober, a, a detached, cold soberness, objective soberness, looking back at the 21st century that we don't. Just like we look back in history and we can see with clarity what we're so caught up in this moment, we're blinded by so many of these realities. And they would look back, I'm convinced by my thought experiment that they look back and be like, of course, in the early 21st century, Homo sapiens figured out that they had developed the technology to continually expand their life. And that the Homo sapien culture shifted to the preservation of life. Whereas right now we're all on the death track and then we play all the fun games along the death track, but it's we just we have to shift the entire zeitgeist where we we do the exact opposite of what we're doing today instead of embracing and celebrating death rituals we move entirely to life extension rituals do you think living forever is possible or even reverse reversing age yeah i mean i so like basically with all the arguments i come down to this idea uh this is akin to us to us interviewing homo erectus a million years ago and asking Homo erectus to make observations on what it's going to be like to be Homo sapiens a million years later, have our kind of cognition, have our technology. Homo erectus would have nothing, like almost nothing useful to say. Do we care what they want or don't want, what they're scared of? Do we value it in any way? Like it's interesting from just an observational perspective, but do we really think that Homo erectus has wisdom of some sort that would allow us to, uh, yeah, to step into this existence? And that's where I think we're at now is like, we're basically, we're sufficiently primitive in our thought. I don't believe in anything we say as it relates to the, to the future, because the intelligence we're walking into is so far superior to ours. Why would we even begin to imagine that we can express an opinion that is meaningful. Do you see it almost like we're walking into a different species of human? Entirely. I mean, unquestionably that's happening. One of the really interesting things that's going on is this thing called CRISPR, mm-hmm. genetic engineering. What is what is that, CRISPR, genetic engineering? I know you did, um, you did some kind of DNA therapy, didn't you? I did. I did my first gene therapy. Gene therapy, yeah. Yeah. What is what is all of that and what's the promise that it holds for us? CRISPR, genetic engineering, and what was your gene therapy? Yeah, currently there's a ceiling on human lifespan, you know, like 120 or so, that if, if you if you uh, live a life a certain way and you're given a genetic 
lottery, then you can do that. But to punch through 120 is very difficult through lifestyle and diet and exercise. And so to, to really punch through the ceiling, you need to start working at the genetic level. And so whether you're doing, uh, there's uh, gene therapy, whether you're doing CRISPR, there's a variety of ways you can start modifying uh, your genetic code. And this has the power or potential to punch through the ceiling. So explain that to an idiot. Gene therapy is injecting genes into you, someone else's genes, genes that have been made in a laboratory. Yeah. Or yeah. So this one is, I just got two injections on either side in my obliques here. And uh, what it does is it expresses the protein uh, folostatin. And so basically I, before I have a certain level, I'm like, I'm like eight or nine. And once you get the therapy, you're higher, like 20s, 30s, 40s. And so it's just increasing, it's increasing the amount of uh, folostatin in my body. And so like one way to understand this is when you work out, myostatin um, lessens the amount of muscle growth that can happen. Folostatin suppresses myostatin, so you have more muscle mass, but it has a whole bunch of other effects as well. This gene therapy didn't change my actual genes, it just increases the expression of folostatin in my body. And how do you know if it works? Uh, measure them. So yeah, I do routine. Well, so there's a few things we're doing. Uh, we're measuring this via my blood. What are my folostatin levels before and after? And then we're also measuring my body with MRI. And so because I'm the most measured person in history, we have this interesting vantage point where we can see across my entire body from my muscle and my um my fat and bone and speed and DNA methylation patterns from my speed of aging to my brain health, like working at hundreds and hundreds of data points to see what effect it has. And have you found an effect yet? Uh, our first results are coming back next week. Someone like me who is, you know, on the high street per se, what are the supplements that are on the high street that that do actually work for anti-aging because people talk about NAD plus and stuff and they, yeah. there's all these clinics now popping up all over London where you can sit in the chair for yeah. two hours and have the little drip in your arm and stuff. Yeah. And I did it once because yeah. um, my friend had opened a, a place and it, I had a very hot chest, yeah. like a burning feeling in my chest. I don't know if it's done anything for me. So I've just got, a, it goes back to what I said earlier, you just got to kind of believe in it or not like a religion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's best to measure it. So you're, you're trying to change your intracellular NAD. I'm sure other people have done, measured it though. So does it work? Uh, the the drips don't. The drips don't work. Uh, you you want sustained levels of NAD, and so we yeah. So I mean, we extensively measure my NAD levels, and we've tested NMN, we've tested NR, we've looked at all the different modalities. You want sustained levels. So my levels when I first started, I think they were uh, equivalent of something like 47 years of age. And now they're reliably age 18. Like I have that much, I have age 18 levels of NAD, intracellular NAD. And we dialed that dosage in because I was able to measure it. And the, the challenge of course is when you do these things haphazardly, get a drip or whatever, it's what you're saying, it's a story. It's a market, it's clever marketing, it's happy faces. It's what your friends are doing, but it's not based on any reality. You need to see it working in your body. Otherwise, you know, be careful when you're, when you're doing it. So the only reason it doesn't work is because it's not sustained, but it would work if it was sustained. So if I did that every week, then it would work. 
You also have to consider the half-life. Okay. So I, I don't know all the data on the drips. So yeah. I know the data much better on NMN and NR. But, but those things then, you take them orally? Yeah, orally every day, twice a day, yeah. Twice a day, and those things work? Yeah, for- yeah, they reliably maintain my NAD, my IC NAD levels uh, at an 18-year-old level. What are some of those big um, anti-aging therapies or businesses or supplements that most people have just thrown themselves into or habits in terms of longevity habits that are just a load of BS? (laughs) I mean, most everything. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Give me some examples. We, I mean, everything listed on the, the blueprint website is three years of our effort to try to figure out what has scientific evidence what can we do in me and measure it and then communicate that out? Yeah, because I, I want to make sure I avoid false advertising. That's right. I got suckered down to do that bloody NAD drip thinking I was going to be an 18-year-old. That's right. So I don't want to do that again. Yeah. What do I need to avoid? I mean, for example, one thing that works is extra virgin olive oil. Well, <laughs> here's one I brought with me earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you sent me this. Um, I did, I sent you that. In the post. Yeah, I mean, so we we tried to... For anybody that can't see, I've got a, a black bottle of extra virgin olive oil that Brian had sent me about a month ago. It says on the front, Blueprint Brian Johnson, ultra premium extra virgin olive oil, completely all black bottle. It looks like a wine bottle. Oh, on the back of it, it says, with the goal of slowing his speed of aging, Brian Johnson allocates 15% of his precise daily car- calorific budget to this extra virgin olive oil. It is rich in polyphenols, which studies show can potentially safeguard against various cancers, cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, and neurodegenerative conditions by providing better reduction of oxidized LDL than regular Evo. Extra virginal olive oil. Interesting. So that's the question, you know, if you, what things can I do in my life that are easy and actionable and have a high impact? Extra virgin olive oil is very close to number one. Really? Mm-hmm. Why? Because of all the things it says on the back. Yeah, <laughs> when you... There you go. Well, that is not how you're meant to have that. It's spicy. Yeah. You put but some pepper in there. It. That's what premium olive oil tastes like. It's 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 good oil. It's good ol- virgin olive oil, but nobody should... It's not nice to drink extra... Oh, it feels quite... It's, it's very... Um, it's quite thick and smooth. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, peppery and smooth. If you look at the evidence we we just shared about what this does, it's unbelievable uh, in the ways it improves health and wellness. It's better than Ozempic. Really? It is. Okay, so explain what Ozempic is. That's a diabetes drug that people are using to lose weight. Yeah, so it's like Ozempic is like the fire alarm. And so, for example, there's a study where people lost 5.2 pounds uh, taking Evo, consuming Evo, for nine weeks. In addition to what they're currently eating? Yeah. Yep. It, and how, when you say taking, what do you mean? Just sprinkling it on top of my food? or Yeah. The, the I think the quantity for that study was, I think, uh, 45 ml daily or, or something like that. It's between 45 and uh, between 30 and 60 mls daily. But there's things, for example, like it it uh, reduces by over sixty percent uh, invasive breast cancer. 
it reduces your your uh, blood sugar levels by 60% post a meal and your oxidized LDL levels these are the this is the bad thing in your body that's causing damage by 80% post a meal so i have a tablespoon with every single meal and it's yeah it's, it's like the super of superfoods and the problem is most of the olive oil in the world does not meet the quality thresholds to make it useful so you think you're consuming olive oil that's actually doing the, having the health benefits. If it doesn't meet very specific criteria, it won't do it for you. So where do we get it? This is what I've tried. To, this is why I solved it because like we basically trying to find a olive oil that you can verify meets the specs is very challenging. So we we built a supply chain across both hemispheres to acquire the best olive oil in the world to make it just easy. You can trust it. The data is shared, and the health benefits are. Um, supported by evidence. And, and this is available online? Mm-hmm, yeah. Everyone can buy this? Yeah. It's exciting. But that's an easy one to do. Go to bed on time and drink your olive oil. You've got something down there on the floor, but you, <laughs> you wouldn't tell me what it was. What is it? Yeah, I brought you two things today. Okay. One, I I brought you a test. Okay, what is it? This test. Okay, that's the test. It's your speed of aging test. Oh, shit. So you should, <laughs> everybody should know three things. You know, how much you weigh, how fast you're aging, mm-hmm. and the duration of your nighttime erections. <laughs> is that what the other thing That's is? That's the other dice. Oh, shit. So we're basically, yep. Yeah, so both these are going to give you a good baseline with where you're at in life. So how do I, how do I do, how do I do this? Is I can, this... I can administer, oh wait, yeah, I can administer that test for you if you want. So I, what it requires is we'll prick your finger, yeah, get a little blood, yeah, put it on the card, yeah, and then we'll send it to the processing to the to, to the um, the center where they're going to process it. and You'll get your results back, and it will tell you how fast your aging clock is internally. How does it know that from a prick of blood? Uh, because your body leaves chemical signatures that reveal the data. Okay, and then I can reverse that presumably yes you yes exactly so if you let's say you get a result back and let's just say it's one so you're aging like a normal person would average person you could potentially slow your speed of aging to 0.6 which means while all of your friends are aging at a normal rate you would get september october november and december for free i'd love that yeah how Olive oil, go sleep, exercise, a good diet, don't it's smoke. It's the basic stuff. The basic stuff. stuff. And what is this other contraption that you've given That is me? how you can measure your nighttime erections. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where am I going to put that? Yeah, so you, you put it on your shaft and just gently, yeah, there you go, gently pull that. And so you put, there you go, put it on the mic. Yeah. There Mine's a little bit bigger. I need to, have you got a, have you got a <laughs> bigger one? Yep. And then you put it on the on the base, and yeah. you put it on, and you th- you think you presume that it's going to be an irritation. It's going to bother you. You're going to feel it. Once you put it on and you go to sleep, you can't feel it. You don't and know what does it do? Like vibrate in the night or something? So yeah, it does. <laughs> no, there's no vibration, but you you have erections throughout the night. Yeah. And when you come erect. The expansion of your penis will be captured by that device, and it will show 
how many erections you had and for what duration and what strength. And I've got you. So you put your, you put your, you go to sleep, you put your penis inside it like, like that. And then when you have an erection during the night, it'll expand and log it. Yes. And it'll keep logging every time you have an erection in the night. That's right. And then we'll tell you, you had four erections tonight that during that duration of sleep, they were 47 minutes, 31 minutes, 55 minutes and whatever. And of this strength, of this quality of erection type. And then this data it's really important because it represents psychological health, sexual health, uh, cardiovascular health. It is basically people are not familiar. Like you go to the gym and build big biceps or whatever, but people are not familiar that nighttime erections are actually a meaningful health indicator. And so you've been me- measuring your nighttime erections. I have. And what have you found out and how have you been able to improve it? Yeah, my, my average right now is two hours and 12 minutes. So you're erect at night for two hours and 12 minutes? Yes. What are, you, uh, what are you dreaming about? <laughs> for, so the thing is, we're not aware of our erections most of the time. And so uh, my, my current erection amount is equal to roughly my chronological age. For me to be equal to an 18-year-old, I would need three hours and 30 minutes Interesting. of nighttime erections. So that's the goal we're trying to achieve. Is, is We're basically, I mean, no one's ever done this before. We're trying to figure out, can you improve nighttime erection? Do you put this on your penis every night? No, just in, I'll do it three to five days in a row. So most, most nights of the week, you'll put this on your penis. I'm sorry. So I'll do, for example, in like, oh, okay. Like in for a, one month. Yeah. Okay, okay, in like, in in like a month, month okay. or two months, okay. I'll do it like three to five. And it depends on what therapies we're doing. And so I, what I coupled up with that is uh, we're trying to. <laughs> Come on, Brian, grow up. <laughs> I'm just playing with it. It's just interesting. Yeah. Uh, I coupled this up with shock, uh, focused shockwave therapy. And so there's this technology, you have a wand and you sit in a chair and then the, the technician uses the wand and basically shocks your penis through, through the acoustic technology. And it's like, it does the same thing as workouts doing where you're creating micro injuries. So then it rebuilds. And so this technology is used for uh, all over the entire body. If you're trying to heal uh, an ACL or you're trying to rejuvenate the knees, uh, the joints, shoulders. So it's a technology that has a broad range of applications. It's also used for erectile dysfunction. So while my scores are, I have no sexual dysfunction. I'm, I score perfect in every category. We're wondering if you take this therapy, this focus shockwave therapy, and if it will just basically rejuvenate the penis and increase nighttime erections. Is there any early evidence that that's working? Uh, yes, I've been shocked by the results. I'm now two months in. It's <laughs> my subjective experience is it's, it's as if my penis has gotten like 15 years younger. So we're, we're still in the early stages. We still need to measure. We need data before we're going to believe anything subjectively. I'm in. <laughs> when you say when you say a shock, do you, do you mean a painful shock, or is it like a you know like a the kind of shock you you pay for? <laughs> like a, like a pleasant... Tell me more. <laughs> is it like a nice feeling? Is it like a vibration, or is it like a? I. Uh, is it painful? It's painful. Yeah, oh, you gosh. you need to be focused. Uh, like you need to do pain management. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's unpl- it's, uh, it's like uh, maybe a seven out of ten, but then once you get to the tip, 
it's like oh a, no they've got to suck the whole thing yeah it's like a nine out of ten because you the tip you have improved sensitivity so it, it generates in addition to what we're trying to do with the nighttime erections it also improves um erection strength and orgasm pleasurability so it has all kinds of benefits i'm trying to figure out physiologically what's going on there so you shock the penis you give a big electric shock to the penis and then it rebuilds like a muscle would yes and that causes it to be more effective going forward yeah yeah it's it's a, a yeah, acoustic technology so it's not like an electrical shock I, this kind of brings, I guess this brings me in part to the thing you use on your abs, the 20K setup mm. machine thing. Yeah. I, I, when I was younger in my house, I think my mum bought it in a catalogue. She had one of those machines that she put on her abdomen and it gave her an electric shock, mm. like, uh, and it like kind of vibrated. And I just always thought it was BS. Yeah. I thought the whole industry was just BS. People feel like it's doing something. So they think they're going to get abs, but you've got like a really extensive impressive machine that does a similar thing mm-hmm. yeah using electromagnetic re- uh, frequency yeah. and it works it does how do you know uh we've looked at it with mri and the muscles are being like broken down and regenerated from the electric shock yeah yeah we've so increased like cheating um so you've got have you got a six-pack i suppose it's defined to some extent you're going to have to show us. <laughs> yeah. With your permission, of course, because yeah. we don't force people to undress on this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, Yeah, you've got, yeah. Yeah, I won't show mine. Not right now. I've been in a oh, for I, I showed you mine? Yeah, but it's, it's. I, I you've, know, it's you've been doing this for three years. It's fine, yeah. I'm new. I've, I'm going to work my way up with the penis shock thing and then I'll I mean, but can, the you, can you imagine being in a conversation and everyone else knows their erection the nighttime erections and you don't like, can you imagine the embarrassment you'd feel? No, I can't <laughs> imagine. No one I know knows how long they're around. I'm, I'm, play- <laughs> I'm, playing. I'm, playing. I'm playing because it's like, it's of course, it's a novel idea. Nobody measures their erections. So it's not part of a social norm, but you can imagine the humor of you finding someone having a, ca- a casual conversation of like, yeah, like I had a really great night sleep last night, new peak record on erection duration and, and direction. <laughs> like, it- no, it's going to become a thing. I know it is because <laughs> sexual health and sexlessness and relationships yeah. and libido are actually a really big topic at the moment for a lot of people. I, I've been in relationships where there's been libido issues and things like that. And I've got friends that have yeah. got libido issues and sexual health issues and things like that. So it, it we, we joke about it, but they're, it's not a joke for a lot of people and yep. it can lead to relationships breaking down and families breaking down. And yeah. so I, I don't, I do think it's a serious topic. And if it, this therapy can help people get their erections back and bring their sex life back, then that's an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. The testimonials of the technology are pretty compelling. Uh, people with ED that it's may, it's causing a significant problem of their own self-confidence of their partner's it's a big deal. Like when, when you can't get erect, it's a very big problem. Your penis is 15 years younger, you believe? I mean, this is a, a subjective assessment. It's just like, you know, uh, as you age, your body becomes less firm and more saggy, right? Across muscle, skin, penis, like you just lose structure across your entire body. And it's improved the structure of my penis. Your hair looks like it's changed as well since we last spoke. Mm. You look like you've got a fuller head of hair. Mm. What's, what's been going on there? 
the the protocol I have is I do uh, platelet-rich plasma every 30 to 60 days. So that that is the process where you draw blood from a vein, you spin it up, and you separate the blood from the plasma. You take the plasma, and then we add a cell and dutasteride. So it's a concoction of plasma, a cell, dutasteride. And it's a total volume of between 13 and 15 milliliters. And then it's injected across the entire head or in the areas that would be balding. And then I also do red light therapy daily, which we spoke about, mm. uh, wear that cap for six minutes. And then I have a nightly concoction that includes a few things like minoxidil and a few others. This is all on my website. So the, the recipe, the protocol, it's all there for everybody. But yeah, I mean, I, I started losing my hair in my early 30s. And it's, it's really hard to, as a, I mean, with my genetics, it's very, very hard for me to maintain hair. So I've had to work very hard at it. What is hair loss anyway? Why does our hair recede? What's going on? It is, <laughs> and it doesn't happen in women. Yeah, I know. You, you, Typically. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really quite annoying that it's <laughs> such a big problem. I wish I didn't have to pay attention to it as much as I do. Why? Uh, it just requires constant attention. And it's a, the technology is not that great yet. You know, like you're, you're basically trying to slow the process. You're trying to improve follicle strength. You're trying to prevent future damage, but it's not like something where I could, like a gene therapy where I, with two injections, I, your levels go up three or four X my, the production of that critical, uh, biochemical in my body. Uh, it's not the case. There's, now there's technology people are working on for cloning. So you take a few of your follicles, you clone that and you re you put them in. So basically like doing a, a hair transplant, but you're cloning, you're doing your own, your own hair. So there's other technologies that are emergent that are promising. They're just not on market yet. So yeah, it's, it's hard. And it's like being as a man being bald, is a meaningful thing, right? Mm -hmm. it's, like it's, it's a significant psychological situation. So like if you look, if you take through the issues of be of like a man would really struggle with psychologically, you know, being bald, not being able to have erections, like those, those are like two of your top five things. And so as you know, I hope that the things I talk about publicly help break the stigma around it so that uh, people feel hope they can do something about it. They don't have to hide it. It's, it's, it's challenging and it's, it's heavy to deal with it. What do you think about air quality? I've been thinking a lot about this. I had James Nestor on this podcast. He was talking to me about the harm of like in-room CO2 and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, my house is, I have devices around the entire house measuring those things every moment of every day. And I have air filters in every room. And so the qual air quality in my house is pristine. In Los Angeles, the air quality is not great. And so I typically will avoid significant outdoor activities on days where the air quality is particularly bad, but I'm always aware of it. So I have monitors in my house that tell me the outdoor air quality and the indoor air quality in every room. What's the harm that you're trying to avoid? Uh, it's damaging. There's like the the uh, the P2.5. Uh, uh, there's a few things that are very damaging and they can get lodged, for example, in your lungs and it's very hard to get it out. So there's a lot of sustained damage that's just hard to undo. Eight. Yes. Eight. Tolo. Is that her name? Tolo? Eight Tolo. 
Kate, will you come on out? <laughs> Kate is a 27-year-old former fashion strategist and is Brian's chief marketing officer. Mm-hmm. But she's also the first woman to ever sign up and follow the blueprint way of living. In Kate is here. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, so head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. Yeah. Okay, so Brian, who is Kate to you? Uh, Kate had the pioneering spirit that helped give birth to Blueprint. We we began working together at Kernel. Uh, we were focused on measuring the brain and how humans could co-evolve with AI. And we started talking about the possibilities of what Blueprint could be. We were the project was underway, and we were trying to figure out how we could communicate this. And Kate saw the potential immediately and has been building this with me for several years. Why did you decide to work with Brian and why did you decide to develop Blueprint? I grew up in a very small town with a very small field of view. And as I got more experience in the world, that view opened farther and further. And I was in New York and I was working in fashion at the time and I was sitting in a cafe and I'd spent the year learning about AI coming into the mainstream and what, how is the human species going to deal with this? And I felt very strongly the only way to proceed forward as a species would be to latch ourselves onto AI and to merge with AI in some way. And so I was in this position where I had all of this energy and I was like, I want to throw it out there into the world. I don't want to do anything on my own. And there weren't many people talking about this as a problem. And one day I was sitting in a cafe and I got an email in my inbox from Singularity University and it included a quote from this man, Brian Johnson, back in 2016. And it it referenced merging with AI. And I thought that's the person that I want to work with and throw my energy toward. And so I reached out to him and across like every medium. uh, So literally his medium articles, email, social media, and I never heard back. And then year after year, I just kept pinging him and pinging him. And then eventually I, I moved out to LA to work with Brian. And what do you do for Brian? You say work, <laughs> work with Brian. I intentionally keep it very vague because we do everything together. We are two peas in a pod. And um, from the very beginning, you know, both at Kernel and at Blueprint, we've just done anything and everything that needs to be done. My background is creative, so I, I lean more toward that side of things. So the marketing and and just general brand design, that kind of stuff. But yeah. And you've become the first woman to follow the Blueprint Protocol. That's right. Yes. I remember hearing about the Blueprint Protocol 
um, last time we had this conversation. And one of the things that stood out to me is the amount of sacrifice Mm -hmm. that goes into living in line with it. Mm -hmm. Things like getting up at a certain time and then going to sleep at a certain time and Mm -hmm. things that you eat. Are you following all of that? Yes. I'm definitely not as extensive as Brian is because uh, I've just started the protocol, but that was a big decision factor for both of us when we're considering this. One is it is incredibly laborious on our team to bring up another person. Um, But not only that, it means completely changing my lifestyle. And so when we were contemplating doing this decision, I really gave it a lot of serious thought because I know that the public are going to follow along. You know, it's a really big decision for my life. It's a big decision for our team and for the resources that get get put behind it. And so early on, we decided that I was going to do a 30 day trial before we made any of this public to make Mm -hmm. sure that am I capable? Am I willing? Is this something I actually want to take on? And so, yeah, it meant completely uh, redefining what my life and lifestyle is. And where are we at now with that 30-day trial? Yes. So I've done my 30-day trial and I'm on about day 90 of Blueprint. So I successfully did my first 30 days, which was, yeah, really, really difficult. And you're day 90 now? Yes. How long are you going to do it for? That's the thing. It's an algorithm. So that was definitely something I was conscious of. This is maybe one of the last decisions I really made because I was deciding to walk into the unknown. Like I didn't know exactly how many pills I'd be taking, what my protocol would be, how many blood draws would I be going into. It was really, am I okay revoking my conscious mind from making this decision-making and stepping into the unknown? So what does your life look like now on a day-to-day basis? So I, so this, this was establishing, you know, the first 30 days was really just the trial. And so um, I'm, we're still in the process of figuring out, you know, what I'm, we're still in the process of personalizing essentially to, to my data. But what I do is I try and get hundred percent sleep every single night. I do perfect nutrition. So I eat the same thing as Brian every single day. So that's 1,700 calories perfectly, you know, uh, mapped out. And then I take over 60 supplements every single day. And I, I, I aim to get a certain amount of um, cardio and strength training and exercise in every week. And how's it been going? It, it was really difficult. It was yeah. much more difficult than I expected it to be. Why? Um, the process of doing Blueprint is really about uh, measurement, intervention, and measurement again. So when we did my baseline measurements, there were a couple things that became apparent. One is that people observe me from the outside, and this is how I observe myself as well, so it's not a comment on other people, but that... If things look okay from the outside, things must be okay on the inside too. And so I had a lot of people like saying to me, oh, you surely must be healthy because, you know, you, you look healthy, so you must mm-hmm. be fine. My baseline fitness testing, for example, put me on like an average of like age 60 or age 70, just based on my flexibility, my strength, um, my, you know, cardiovascular health, all those kinds of things. Um, and then my blood work for example you know a few things came back off which is to be expected like my vitamin d my zinc which is easy to fix but then my oxidized ldl came back high which is extremely concerning because i'm only 27 years old and these are the kinds of um flags that you see early on that can lead to things like stroke or you know a buildup in your arteries that can lead to really serious health consequences so there were a couple things in those like baseline tests for example that had a red flag then throughout the process i would say that it's because all of a sudden you're given this huge task of looking after yourself to perfection. You come face to face with the things that are in the way of your better, of living a better life. So your self-destructive tendencies. And so for me, like day one, I had like 
three different existential crisis like moments, you know, where my whole life crumbled down because you come face to face with things that are in your way that you had never had to deal with before. Like what? So, you know, Brian talks about evening Brian, the Brian that, you know, over eight between five and 7 p.m. or 10 p.m. Um, every night. For me, it was priority Kate. I didn't realize before I did Blueprint that my whole life has been structured around helping other people and never focusing on myself. It was like I was completely blind to the fact that any opportunity I get, I would deflect from myself and be like, how are you doing? What can I do for you? You know, because I, I realized that I didn't have a relationship with self where if other people couldn't see it, I just neglected it. So in like little things, it meant that I would schedule meetings back to back and I wouldn't make time to, you know, use the restroom or eat or have proper sleep. Um, and then 10 p.m. would roll around and I'd finish work. And the only thing that was left open was McDonald's. And so that's what I would eat for dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, if, if a friend, if I committed to hang out with him on a weekend, there was no way I was going to, you know, say that I can't do that anymore just to get enough sleep because, you know, ultimately I cared more about the other people's perceptions than my, my own actual well-being. People pleaser. Yes. People please are big time. Mm. And to do blueprint, it's sounds like it's the antithesis of people pleasing. Yep, I would say so. Um, and it's kind of like that, you know, Brian references this, but the the airplane example where you want to put your ma- own mask on before you can help others. So, you know, in this process, I've slowly learned that I am functioning better and I can actually do more of that people pleasing in a weird way anyway mm. by looking after myself first. What, are, what have been the... Although it's just been 90 days, Mm -hmm. what have you noticed changes? So as far as actual like results and data, it was, it was very um, straightforward. Everything improved pretty much across the board. Um, So my, my restorative sleep increased by 19% in 30 days. Um, My flexibility improved, my strength improved, like my, my leg press one rep, uh, rem rep, one rep max went from 220 pounds to 360 pounds in 30 days. Um, I did a VO2 max testing um, so my body's ability to use oxygen. When I first did it at the start of the 30 days, I was put at the 51st percentile. So if you look at it like an age graph, you'd be able to predict exactly what age I am. That was spot on average. And then after 30 days, I had increased into the top 7% of fitness for my um, age and gender, which is huge for me because I'm someone who has never exercised a day in my life before this. I'd never gone on runs. I hated the gym. I'd never been trained in the gym. It was just something that was like the antithesis of anti-Kate, you know? Mm. Um, so yeah, huge, huge changes on my end. And my blood work improved. We're still waiting on my oxidized LDL to come back, but generally everything everything looks really good. What's your take on that and things that have improved and the changes you've seen in her? I think the, the most interesting and uh, entertaining was the existential crises mm. where they be, they became so frequent. I would send her messages just like in a, a joking fashion, like, Hey, like, <laughs> Hope your existential crisis is going well today. How can uh, how can I help? Uh, but she really was. I I applaud her because she jumped in with both feet, and she was willing to share the entirety of her internal experience. So she didn't try to camouflage any of her pain. She didn't try to uh, be tougher than she was. She was just open and transparent about the entire process. And I think that people around us, the entire team, and uh, those observing drew a lot of inspiration because she was open about everything and about what she was struggling with internally. And uh, she was willing to step into the problem. Like she, she didn't miss a single day and that's hard. Like there's a lot of uh, motivation to quit or to take a day off. And so I am really pleased that um, she gave it a go and uh, she prevailed. It w- would have been very easy for her to quit. 
Hit your 27. Yes. Um, sacrifice. Yeah. People think of 20, your 20s sacrifice. They think going out, partying. Did you do that stuff before? Did you like date, you know, all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely was a big consideration for me. And like the other thing to add is Blueprint, especially at the level we're trying to do this at, is a a full-time endeavor and so you have to fit this into your existing lifestyle and so it's really difficult even things like you know during that 30-day trial we traveled for work and i remember we got back one day and it was like 6 p.m or something like that and everyone was like zonked after being on the road for three days or something like that and i was like i gotta go exercise now guys and everyone was like what mm. <laughs> but that's the thing like you know my data it demanded it my body demanded it and so i was gonna do it it wasn't about you know what i wanted in that moment or not um so it is a very intense thing to commit to. As far as like the socializing and all that kind of stuff, yeah, I, I was someone who, you know, would stay up. I mean, I would stay up working a lot of the time. Like I'm a grind culture child. Like I, I really did throw myself into it. So I would say that's probably the thing that changed the most. On the socializing thing, like my friends have been so uh, accommodating, you know, I, we'd go out for brunch still and I would bring my blueprint tin and just sit at the table while, you know, other people were having their you know, maybe their mimosas mm. with orange juice in it. Um, but yeah, I think there have been easy ways to make it fit into my life. And the people around me have been really accommodating, which is lovely. What's been the biggest and the hardest sacrifice? The thing that you, you know, maybe on the difficult days you miss a little bit. You know, it's just so sad, but my, the first thing that comes to my mind is oat milk lattes. Like I'm such a <laughs> typical, you know, uh yeah young person now but yeah i you know there's like little you you realize you come face to face the fact that a lot of life's small joys are baked into the things that you do on a routine basis and so it just it took me a while to remap those things um but Did now, you drink before no i mean i was i was like a normal Casual, yeah normal person yeah so drinks on the weekend with friends when you feel a little bit guilty if you quit doing this after everything the team have invested in you brian's faith in you <laughs> Does that not feel like a bit of a pressure? Yes, it does. However, this was also, you can't let those things drive you when you're on Blueprint. So for example, I halfway through my, my 30 day period, I started to really not feel great. And I would watch my heart rate, you know, as you get better exercises, uh, exercise, your fitness improves, it's harder to get your heart rate up. And I was going against this metric of, I need to get my heart rate over 173 beats per minute um, to hit this vigorous heart rate zone to get my markers um, up. And I was pushing myself and pushing myself. I was, you know, I documented all this all, you know, throughout YouTube channel and whatnot, but I was at this point where I was crying on the weekend and I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I think I have to give up because I just couldn't get my heart rate up. And it took me a second to realize that priority Kate had snuck in again, but in this really subtle, you know, backdoor kind of way where I was holding myself to this expectation of I needed to do these very intense things so I could prove to the public that I can do this. I'm going to be, you know, this blueprint XX. When in reality, the blueprint way is actually stop, look at the data. And if I had done that, I really would have seen that my, my HIV was down, my recovery was down. Like my body was asking for a break, but my conscious mind was stepping in and saying, you need to prioritize the viewpoint of others and how they're going to think of you and make sure you just hit these goals regardless of what the data says. So I think that to answer your question, if I'm people pleasing in that way, I just get in my own way. But if you stop and look at the data... 
that's where actually the insight comes from. Why did, Brian, why did you want Kate to do this? Did you want her to do it? And if so, why? Um, We talked about this extensively and I told Kate that there was no pressure, no expectation, that uh, it was entirely her decision that she could think through it. Uh, There were other people that could certainly fulfill the role. So it was Kate's call to do it. And even when she was doing it, it was entirely her decision whether she wanted to continue. And so I made it very, very clear. There was no pressure, no uh, overriding assumption that was not being uh, communicated. So this is why I think the 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 shift in transition from grind culture to taking care of one's health is there's so many layers. Uh, people are very fast to come up with excuses and reasons why they don't want to do it. And I think by Kate doing this, it was um, a transparent reveal of everything she had stacked up that was stopping her from doing that. And uh, I thought it would be interesting because she she understood the intricacies of the endeavor so thoroughly, and she also was aware of how we were communicating to this. And she had this vantage point that was really unique. Uh, so I thought it'd be uh, she'd be a perfect candidate to do it. Uh, but again, no obligation, entirely her call if she thought this would be a good move for her. Kate, blink once if you're being held hostage. <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly right. right. Do you want to die? I want to have the opportunity to live. You want you want to have the opportunity to live. That's very intentional because yeah. he said he doesn't want to die. Yeah. You might have seen it on the shirt. Yeah. You want, what's the nuance there? I don't mind the idea of death. You know, if it happens, it happens. But I would love to be able to spend each minute living as much as possible. And so I, that's what this is for me. I think I'm, I'm on the same page with you. Yeah. I... I'm not scared of dying. Um, I don't think you're scared of dying, are you, Brian? You're not scared of dying. Um, But would I like the opportunity to live on? I would like the opportunity to live on. But I do also think that what makes life enjoyable is the scarcity. The fact that I'm... Me sitting here now is me choosing not to do everything else is why this is so special. Yep. Totally agree. So, Also, you know, I find this like idea of the fear of death and people kind of like balking at that it's interesting to me because i think if anything is more rational to fear fear i would say it's death like out of all the fears i could have in life fear of death is probably one that i would choose to have you know that makes sense to me i'd love to 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 really want to live every single second of the day yeah same what how would you how do you think about what we just said that the fact that we are going to die creates the specialness in the life that we have i don't think we know what we're talking about. Okay, fair enough. enough. I I, I do understand what you're saying. I I think I lose everybody. Like, you know, Kate is a much more relatable person. Like she, you know, she says things (laughs) that people are like, that's sensible. And I understand that. And I say something, people are like, that's really weird. I'm not quite sure what to do with that. But I really, (laughs) and so I really am trying very hard to be more understandable, uh, to be more relatable Mm -hmm. and have these viewpoints. But I, I can't seem to land this idea that it's possible we are so primitive in our current way of being mm-hmm. that we wouldn't even dare ask ourselves our own opinions about anything. When you talk about this playing it forward into the future and asking future civilizations about us or then playing it backwards, that does help me understand it. Because if you'd gone a million years backwards and asked them about us, they never would have been able to predict this incredible world exactly. and we're probably living like four times longer than they did anyway. Yeah. Since, we've, since we last spoke... Is there anything that's been on your mind that you uh, you think is important as an update for the mm. listeners who listened to the last episode? Mm. Yeah, I mean, we we it was a 
a fun couple months. We had gene therapy. Uh, I published a book, and we you know, Kate uh, completed her ninety days of of uh, first female on Blueprint, uh, doing the full program. We made for, uh, available for free the entirety of the recipes of Blueprint. So we basically we've made for free uh, the dietary protocol, all the exercises, all the supplements, a book. Like we basically, what I hope is we've given a, a blueprint for the future evolution of being human, mm-hmm. and we've made everything available for free for everyone all over the world. Wow. And what comes next? <laughs> the best is yet to come. Yeah, we've got a couple fun projects. Just give me one. Uh, let's see. It's another gene therapy. Okay. Yeah. To do what? To extend life? I mean, if we really are trying to punch through the ceiling, then we you can only do so much with diet, sleep, and exercise, and we've kind of mastered those things. So now we're trying to level up on more powerful therapies. Exciting. Look forward to hearing. The question that's been left for you in the diary is, dear next guest, as you look back on the interview right now, what's one thing you wish you said or did differently? Yeah. Okay. I, I don't know if I did this justice, so I, I, wanna, I want to communicate with more clarity that regardless of the data and how I feel and all these kinds of things, the thing that I always come back to on whether or not this is the right decision for me, as in blueprint, is am, who's doing a better job of looking after Kate? Is it current Kate or past Kate? And I would argue that even if it's only a marginal improvement, it's worth taking this step toward looking after oneself just a little bit better. And so that's how I feel about this whole process. Is like, I know based on the data, I know based on my subjective experience, based on any other metric that I'm doing a better job now than I was previously. So, Which Kate's happier? I think Kate has no control over her own happiness. And so I almost never try to optimize her happiness. When Brian sat down, he said, I'm the happiest I've ever been. Yeah. Is, is this the happiest you've ever been? Yes. Yep. So Pure, this, purely, go ahead. This Kate's happier than old Kate. Yes. But I would say that Kate always is biased to saying that Kate is always the happiest <laughs> in any given moment. Kate is generally a very optimistic and happy person. And is the blueprint different for women than it is for men? Because there's different sort of hormonal and physiological elements to men and women. Yeah, that's what we're currently in the process of figuring out. So it took Brian, what, like two, three years and millions of dollars to get his protocol stabilized. So we're currently in that process of figuring out how are we tuning it to, to my to my hormones and levels and tracking my data. So we're in a very exciting period. Have you kept account of how many millions of dollars it's cost you to do this? Uh, yeah, I have the accounting. It's um, probably three to four at this point. Yeah. The majority of that has been on the measurement protocols. It's the scientific research. It's like, uh, yeah, trying to get your head around everything that's ever been published, get that structured in a way that's actionable, then doing the measurement. But the actual implementation is very cheap. You're like, this is the thing is we, um, someone made a comment the other day that this is the the uh, most impactful humanitarian project ever in that the more value is being delivered to more people. And um, I love the frame that... Um, it's a species-wide evolutionary plan. And we, uh, we're, we're launching a product. So one of the biggest questions we've received, like this is one of the more exciting things we have going on, is 
when we did blueprint started blueprint it was never to make money we never had a commercial plan we never had like some sneaky idea it was just like we wanted to pursue the, the boundaries of science and then it became a thing and people are like make this easy because i want to do it but i don't want to spend the time and mm -hmm. so over the past few months we've created a, a blueprint product stack and i think that we'll be ready to launch in 90 days or so i think it will be competitive with the most nutritious product in history interesting and it's a supplement it's uh it's it's a powders and pills food supplement extra virgin olive oil it's a whole bunch of stuff it's basically i think we'll be able to deliver to people at a lower cost you know whether we succeed in this or not whether we succeed at the number one spot i like the idea that we're competing with the best the best most nutritious food product ever built in human history. And I like that we are at least competing for that slot. And so I think it would make sense for the UN to be putting blueprint into the hands of people and uh, than anything else out there. And so that's exciting that it's, we're just rounding the corner from this novel idea to this full-scale humanity-wide conversation on what can we become and basically trying to purge from our society the self-destruction that we've embedded in, within it. Hey, I've got one more question for you before Brian answers the book question. Yeah, just thought of one. Go ahead, you want to take it? Mm -hmm. um, what, can you tell me something that you disagree with Brian on? Mm, that's actually really, really hard because I think we agree on most things. Um, we typically see the world uh, from, from pretty different perspectives. Definitely. We reconcile them ultimately, but we definitely view the world uh, meaningfully different. Yeah, I really see myself as a, an operations manager for humanity. Not not because like I, I just find that that's a role that we have not really tackled as a species yet. You know, being able to see the systems that underlie humanity at this huge scale, and so nutrition is one of these things. Like we, you know, this blueprint stack that we're working on, it's almost like your your mom has packed you a lunchbox and said, here's the basics of what your body has requested for today. Like go out, have a great day. You know, you've got a budget to go and like, have fun in this specific kind of way, but just like, here's what you need at a basic level. And I think there's only a small, you can, you can change the world with a small, a couple of small changes like that, that we just haven't thought about on that efficient level. If you're the operations manager of yeah. humanity, what is Brian? Brian is the the visionary behind behind pushing this. I mean, I, when I met... It was such a good opportunity to roast me. What? <laughs> it, was so good. Like, it was like teed up. You could have dunked on me. Well, what did it mean? <laughs> it was like a moment for you to dunk on me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, that's... Yeah. Okay, so Brian, your question then. So I will... See, where can I speak to camera? <laughs> Which one? Okay, great. I'd say... Uh, last time I was on the podcast, hi everyone, nice to see you. You were all so kind to me in the comments on our last video together. And I've become accustomed to get pretty beat up about on pretty much everything all the time. And all of you, there were so many of you who were so generous and kind and charitable and compassionate, and I just really appreciate you. I read all the comments. I find it to be a really informative source about what I'm doing well to communicate, what I'm struggling on. And I appreciate your generosity with me uh, as I stumble through 
how to communicate ideas that make sense in my mind, but then, you know, they don't land as clearly with others. But I appreciate that you're willing to entertain the discussion. And uh, yeah, just a really, I was really touched by how your, your kindness. So you've developed a powerful community that of highly intelligent, compassionate, engaging people. And I appreciate being a member of that because it's these topics are hard and it's easy to lob insults and make derogatory comments. It's just so easy to try to pick that off as the form of communication. And yeah, this community did not. They took a different path and it was really encouraging to read. You read every comment? I read most of them. Does that do the does any of it ever hurt you? <laughs> and maybe you should answer uh, yeah, this, Kate. Uh, you, can you answer this? We just collected a whole bunch of mean tweets for a YouTube video we have coming out soon. Brian reading mean tweets. And honestly, I don't think I've ever seen Brian more happy than reading mean tweets. He absolutely loves it. I did notice that on Twitter. I was like, he really loves <laughs> engaging with this stuff. How, how, how have you got yourself to that place mentally? where you can read someone saying some just the worst thing about you and seemingly spin it into a joke and apparently really genuinely not care. Yeah. Not only do I not care, I love it. Why? Um uh, Kate, well, I mean, why why do I why why do I love it? I mean, it's really beyond my comprehension. I don't know. I mean, and maybe, you know, like in other times in my life, maybe I would have been more sensitive to it. But I mean, I people work so hard at making the absolute most cutting insult they can generate. I know they, they spend a lot of time doing these things. And I, I appreciate the effort. I mean, you know, like, it's great. I'm not sure why, but it does. It brings me genuine happiness. I, I would wager that Brian... Brian, I love people don't realize how thoughtful he is. Every second behind the scenes, he's constantly thinking about other people and what they're going to think. So I feel like you've actually explored all of these roasts in your own head. And so to witness them come to life, it's just like, oh, fun. People are having fun with me. Like, it's great. Interesting. Gosh. Gosh. <laughs> I do. I do. I do think that, Brian. I do think that you're very, very thoughtful. I even notice it in the way you answer questions. You take a pause often and people don't typically do that. They just give the answer and then for you to even say to some questions I don't know is again a, a sign of that thoughtfulness but I always also think people that are that sort of neurotic and thoughtful and always thinking in their head I think god they must be a little bit tortured in some way like mm. it it can't be a pleasant experience to be that intelligent and thinking about that many things that often because you're going to end up thinking about some things that aren't so great yeah you know what I mean if you mm. can if you have that ability to think you know I think that about Elon a little bit as well like he he speaks about being a young man that had like an existential crisis and and uh, made him depressed. And then he watched Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and that kind of got him out of his depression. But being that intelligent and thoughtful comes with a cost now. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly am familiar with torturing myself. I've been in time times in my life, like the majority of my life, I actually vigorously tortured myself. And it's only been in the past few years in conjunction with Blueprint where I have been rid of that torture. Hmm. And I, I think also when people make these biting comments to me, they don't even compare with the comments I make to myself. I mean, I am I, in previous versions of me, I was brutal to myself in ways. And of course, I know all of my, uh, I know the underbelly of, you know, so I know how to make the most biting comment to myself. 
And so I'd say after experiencing that, anyone else trying to uh, tear me down, just like it's totally insignificant. It doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, this is the thing, like uh, if we, I guess I'll be sincere for a moment, is if, like how lucky are we to exist in this moment? And if we're really trying to figure out how we have the most fulfilling existence, prioritizing our health and wellness of getting good sleep and eating well and avoiding bad things changes your existence. You want different things. You think about different things. You respond differently to, to people's comments. You, you're you a different human. And this is in, in some ways why I don't trust. So first, I don't trust any of my own responses, but I trust even less other people's responses who are half dead. When they're not sleeping well, when they have bad habits, when, they aren't thinking clearly. We know this from science that you you become inebriated. And so that's why when I think about humanity, like do we are we actually of the right mind of clarity to say anything about our wants and desires? And I think we're all just drunk on addiction and we just can't see our way through this thing. And so when we say, I want this or I want that or whatever, I don't believe it. We're not in our we're not in our best mind state right now and we don't trust our own judgment. And this is, it's, it's hard for us to comprehend that because we have to trust ourselves on a day-to-day -day basis doing these things and to step, take a step back and be like, could I be wrong about basically everything? Takes so much courage to, to even contemplate. And it's offensive to most people's minds, but really I think it's where we, we are best to be there to question all these things. And, and this is how I stumble in these conversations. Like I know even in talking with you today, I know when I say certain things to you, they don't resonate, right? You're like, kind of see your point, but like really uh, this, this path makes much more sense to me. And uh, yes, I'm really trying to improve at this game. Uh, it's a hard one. It's mm -hmm. like, um, there, there's like, I'll, there's one story here I'll share. Um, it's my favorite one. So there's a captain navigating the ocean and receives a communication change course 30 degrees north hmm. the captain radios back you change your course 20 degrees south gets a radio back no immediately change 30 degrees north now at this point the captain is irritated uh, his authority the, their authority has been challenged so the captain radios back this is fleet commander so-and-so of the battalion so-and-so or whatever change 30 north and of course this has always worked for that person uh always use force and authority and bullying to get whatever their objective is and the communication comes back i'm a lighthouse change course 20 south in this conversation as a species we are the fleet commander our minds are the fleet commander we believe we can bully our way through any conversation is the future worth living? I'll tell you right now. Do I want this cigarette? I'll tell you right now. Do I want to sleep versus something else? I'll tell you. Our mind has an infinite depth of answers and it knows all things. I think the future could potentially be a lighthouse. When we offer up a response about something we want, feel, think, imagine, whatever, our tactic that has always worked for us in the past that so we can just bully our way through all things is somehow not going to work anymore because it's a lighthouse. And that's what the future feels like to me is we cannot use the tactics that have worked for us in the past, that the, the circumstances have changed so radically 
the new the old rules don't apply a new game is coming and like sure we don't know what's going to happen and sure we don't know if it's going to be positive or negative we don't even know if we'll have a conception of positive or negative like maybe those ideas will even go away like we have no clue whatsoever what our existence would be like and this is like why purging society of this stuff is interesting to me like why would we not wage war right now like wage war on this it's it's ruining our chances of the future like even something like like the Halloween holiday traditions. Why are we contributing to the dying of our children by giving them sugar as they walk around from house to house? Like, how are we this foolish? Got our Halloween sponsor. Joking, we haven't really. No, it's true though. But that's the way we've designed society. But I'm I'm hopeful about that because conversations like this, um, and all the podcasts out there that are having these conversations are changing the dial. I've seen an evolution in myself over the last twelve months of doing this. The the types of subjects we're talking about, and sugar, and ultra processed foods, and sleep, and all of these things. So if it's gently nudging me, I'm convinced it's gently nudging my listeners and there's more shows like this all around the world and we're all kind of becoming awakened to it because we're feeling the symptoms, Mm -hmm. the symptoms of that Mm -hmm. discontent, the depression, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. inflammations killing everybody and cardiovascular diseases. So I think it feels like there's a slow but certain uprising in society. I agree. I I feel that. I perceive the same thing. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you so much, Kate. Really appreciate you sharing that with me. Um, so interesting. And I really hope we can have this conversation again when you hit more milestones. Everybody needs to go and get the extra virgin olive oil because, as I said, everybody's been raving about this extra virgin olive oil. But, as I said a second ago, I really, really trust yours. So that will be the one that I'm stocking in my house. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for Thank having you, us. Kate. Thank you. Do you need a podcast to listen to next? We've discovered that people who liked this episode also tend to absolutely love another recent episode we've done so i've linked that episode in the description below i know you'll enjoy it you are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level and a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.